Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast in a cold, drippy downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. The panelists today are... Emmanuel Gennard. Dave Anderson. William Jeffries. And today we'll be talking about software development books and literature. I imagine you've picked up a book or two depending on what programming language you're writing in. Reading software-related literature is one of the many ways we stay on our toes in the field. And in this room right now, with over 20 years of experience, we're going to share some of our favorite books that we've read recently and some that has changed us in the course of our career. There's many books out there from learning skills on management to learning a particular programming language or programming concept like object-oriented programming. So I'm hoping developers out there who are listening will take these books and as our recommendations and put them in their own library. Manny, I believe you mentioned you've recently finished reading Pooter. Yes, Pooter, which is not about poo. It's uh, Practical <laughs> Object-Oriented Design in Ruby by Sandy Metz. Awesome. I was surprised in that the focus of the book from the beginning to the end, how if you design your code well, it saves you time and it saves you money. And it's really, I know people talk about writing beautiful code and maybe you will end up writing beautiful code and maybe it will be like this beautiful thing that people just read and it's like just reading it is, is amazing. But she says several times throughout the book how you're doing this because it saves you time and saves you money. If you write code well and you organize it well, really, it's really the thing. When, you, when it comes time to change it later, it becomes a lot easier to change. And that saves you time, saves you money as, as a developer, as a business, as what you're doing. And she says that several times throughout the book and she keeps going back to it. And it's really one of those books that emphasizes the point of object-oriented design better than like a book about patterns might would because she also mentions how you as the designer of the code have to make a decision about, is this worth doing right now? Like, with the information I have about what, what, whatever the requirements are to, for today, is this worth doing? And a lot of people I've seen who have read the book have taken some of the techniques out without really understanding I, what I think to be the heart of the book, which is making the decision about whether doing some technique is even worth doing at the moment that you're doing it. Because the present moment is when you have the least information and you're going to get more information later. So... It's really very insightful. As someone who's working on a project right now at a client that is using Ruby, it's been really helpful in understanding how I can better help the client and what I can do to apply some things from this book and whether I should even bother doing it, really, and some of the things to consider. I have some questions about the book, actually. So I've read a couple of chapters, maybe. I've, I've skimmed them pretty quickly. And... I really love the qualities of the book that you're you're talking about. And I believe that I will have to be learning Ruby very soon myself. So I'm kind of wondering, like, is this a book that you'd say the main value is in like the thought and like philosophy behind it? Or do you feel like you also get some good information about like how to write idiomatic Ruby, how to apply that within Ruby and like not offend anyone by <laughs> writing like Say Ruby that looks like Python. Or right. Yeah. It <laughs> looks like Java. I get what you're coming from. I've seen people who I can tell are from a Python background and writing Ruby because some of the things they do. And, you know, it's not. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no offense to any Python developers out no, there no, listening. No, 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 no. It's not about the Python. It's like this book specifically is not really about writing 
idiomatic Ruby because a lot of the ideas, if I think they are really well understood, are not about Ruby per se, but about thinking about how I make a decision and how I arrange this code I'm using. Where do I put stuff? Like, mm. where do I put a certain type of test? Where do I put a certain type of method on something? Who mm-hmm. should have that method, right? And why? Really mm. why? So just like thinking about code yeah, and like thinking doing it about really it. well. Cool. And do- doing it really well. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, I'm still interested in reading the book. Even yeah. <laughs> though I'll need to find another book for <laughs> idiomatic Ruby, I yeah. guess. So I imagine this book has improved your quality of writing Ruby code throughout you reading the chapters. Yeah, I I spoke about this in a recent podcast, but I learned something in this book that broke production. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that I used to break production at a client. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but the principle was sound. Mm. The execution was not. Uh, and that's my fault. <laughs> yeah. But really, yeah, you know what it comes down to is it makes it more clear why one way might be better than another. If you like are reading this book, it's a pretty famous book in the Ruby and Rails community. Sandy Metz is famous and she deserves all the fame and glory and <laughs> accolades she gets. So you're reading this book, try to remember that it's not so much about the techniques, but about why you use the techniques and to if you try to actually put it into practice to, you know, at least check that your code didn't break everything. Right. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely different books that people will gravitate to depending on certain programming languages and the uh Pooter book by sandy metz is like always recommended by all ruby developers yeah that i come across kind of like a bible almost yeah a buddy of mine was like starting to learn ruby and he had a couple of ruby books that he shared with me and like immediately like i just this is when i read the first couple of chapters and immediately like this one stood out i was like okay this one i'll have to look at later these other ones I don't really care about because they're just listing like methods and mm-hmm. like references for Ruby. What was your motivation for seeking out a Ruby book? What were you hoping to get out of it? I was talking with my friend who was learning Ruby and he he told me it was a really good book. And I was just scanning it to see like, is this a good book like about programming? Like which of these would you recommend starting with? And so I was just scanning through them and I just got hooked and I started reading a couple chapters, but I never actually followed through. I'm kind of curious as to what people's motivations are for reading programming books in general. Like, higher level, are you doing this to become a better developer? Are you doing this because you need to learn a new language or tool? Are you doing it because somebody convinced you to read it because they just raved about it so hard? Like, what is it that brings you to the library? I I would like to learn, like, kind of transferable things myself. Like, I guess I don't really find as much value in, like, something that is a reference because that's what I have Dash for. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what Google's for in Stack right. Overflow. Like those those kind of references are already out there. And to have something that gives me like really insightful and transferable, like you know what Emmanuel was saying, that you can get in, in Pooter, like that's that's really awesome. Um something that's like kind of cross cross domain. Like, what's an example of something that was highly transferable that you got out of a book? So, a couple of months ago, I read a book called The Phoenix Project. And it's not exactly a technical book, per se. You're not actually looking at code in the book. It's really written more in the style of a story, where there's, like, a main character, and he's kind of, like, this noir-style hero, former military guy who's, like, 
elevated in the ranks from a lowly IT support manager to the CTO of a company. And he's given a situation where he needs to deal with it. It's kind of interesting because it it really like slowly reveals to you some good principles about how you can identify problems and solve them that really apply to any number of things like you know a technical situation or a more soft managerial situation like the main thing in this book is that this guy he's got a dysfunctional organization like it's very like kind of Ayn Rand where like it's an allegorical thing like this is a, a metaphor for an organization and everything possible that can go wrong goes wrong it is like painful for me to read the first part of the book because I've lived this before. <laughs> I've been in these situations and I'm like, oh no, that's not going to be happening. No. Oh, don't do that. Why? Oh, pushing a prod on Friday. Oh gosh. Oh. At 3 p.m. <laughs> oh gosh. The payroll system's down. Yeah. Oh, oh gosh. Man. Yeah. So yeah, the first part of this book is a train wreck. And then he kind of like has this mentor who teaches him Zen of like constraints and realizing like theories of production that apply to like material goods can also apply to producing software and kind of realizing where the key resources are and what is causing inefficiency in the organization. And so I read this book and I got to that part where like he was given the Zen knowledge from on high. And then I went to work the next day. I'm looking around. I'm like, oh my God, I recognize the constraints. Like one of the characters in the book is is Brad and he just like has his hands in everything. He's like fixing all the problems wherever they are. And like he's like part of the problem because like no one else knows how to do it. He's an island of knowledge. And like I look around, I'm like, oh my God, there's a couple of people here who like know everything and like they're the showstoppers like when things don't get done and like that that kind of like little perception shift made really helped me like kind of understand a little bit better you know what was really going on and you know when other people were being not productive and other people were like running around like really concerned about the situation and like doing everything they could uh because like they were the only ones who could save it they were the superheroes and it's like you always thought like oh, well, those people are, you know, they're the best, but actually they're kind of part of the problem in a way. And it's a role that management needs to take control of and help to resolve that kind of an issue. It's like a a fable almost. Yeah, it really is. Like, who's John Galt? Like, it's exactly (laughs) like that. (laughs) But not as heavy-handed as... The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged. Thank God. Like, <laughs> like that book I threw away. Like I could not deal with that. But this like, you know, taught me something real that I, yeah. I related to. Oh man, Fountainhead is the kind of book that's really dangerous to read when you're 15. Terrible. Yeah, don't read the Fountainhead when you're 15. Read the Phoenix Project and yeah. <laughs> it'll really help you as a junior developer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you got Pooter, Sandy Metz, and we have the Phoenix Project. Awesome. Going back to the Phoenix Project, reading this book, how did you get to this book? Um, was it like given to you by like a client? Was it like something of interest? And because I imagine if it just fell into your lap, like 
it was destiny for you to read this book and then <laughs> kind of it opened your eyes and you get to see all these problems that were happening like a week before you read this book. So I'm curious to know, like, how did you get to this book? Honestly, like it, it was kind of fate, but only in, in that, like it was fate that I got this job at Stride. Oh, it's okay. an awesome job at Stride. Yeah. And there are a lot of really thoughtful people who have put together a list of recommended reading. And I had read some of the books that were on the list already, and I knew that they were awesome. And I don't know. I just happened to pick this one up. I was curious about DevOps. And like that's that's one of the main things about the book, although obviously it's a lot about a lot more. So, yeah, I just picked it up, and, and it was uh, pretty awesome. It was, a, it was a really quick read, too, because like it has knowledge in it. Like That's helpful, but it's framed in a story. And like I... I'm a voracious reader with fiction. With like nonfiction and like dev books, like technical books, I'm pretty slow. But like, so that was a good like format for me to just digest it right away. That's really cool. It seems like a book that talks about that softer side. I, I hate the word softer side because it's not really, it implies like it's less important sometimes or it's like squishy when really there is some really, I think, very concrete things of how, what it feels like and to, to come to work and what kind of people do you work with. That is, in my mind, a very concrete thing. Like when I go to a client, there's a certain feeling that I have, you know, when I'm working on the code. And so, and when I'm meeting with my manager, there's a certain feeling that I have. It's an important partner given the importance it deserves. But yeah, I mean, really. There's an expression in Portuguese that I really like that I think captures this, the value of soft skills really well. I think the issue with hard versus soft skills is that people associate soft with weak. Uh, but sometimes softness is actually stronger than hardness. And the expression in Portuguese is agua mole, pedra dura, tanto bate até que fura. And it means soft water, hard rock, it hits it until it it punctures it. It's this notion that a consistent dripping of soft water can actually bore a hole all the way through solid rock. And I think th that really gets to the power of softness. Sometimes when you're really hard, either with your speaking or your attempts to convince someone, or I suppose there are a lot of instances where a really hard fisted approach is actually less effective. And so I've just sort of gotten used to the idea that soft skills can be just as important or even more powerful, stronger than hard skills. I like the rhyme in that too. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound as good in English. It sounds like in Portuguese. Yeah. William, I agree with you on the soft skills being more prevalent to uh, hard skills. I imagine like if I had to think about the day-to-day, -day, I often spend time, you know, speaking with the client and talking to other people and figuring out like architecturally how we're going to uh, design like this next feature. I would think that it's about like 80%, you know, trying to figure out the story or figure out how we're going to move forward with this feature until we sit down and actually code. So I do think that like Soft skills is very important. I think some people, hopefully not you listeners out there, but some people overlook that 
And I would definitely recommend reading The Phoenix Project to, you know, gain the sets of soft skills necessary to, you know, see the pitfalls that are happening at your client. And read up on the Sandy Mets if you want to read up on Ruby on your hard skills to become a better Ruby developer and object-oriented programmer all in one. I have a teach and learn. I learned something right before we started recording. Um, I learned about RSpec Bisect. So Emmanuel had uh, mentioned in the current client that he's in about a particular test that's failing when all the tests are running, but would pass when it's running by itself. William just taught me about RSpec Bisect, where you can run RSpec Bisect and it'll run a half of your test suite. And then it'll ask you, hey, did it fail in this half? And you can say yes or no. And it'll pretty much binary tree search the failure where it happens so that you can then kind of figure out what is happening with your database, your test database, or if there's any like um, instantiation that's happening between tests or whatnot. I mean, you guys can definitely correct me if I'm wrong. I just learned from you, William, <laughs> on <laughs> our spec by sex. So it's like a teach and learn double whammy. So It's actually even cooler. You don't even have to tell it whether or not there was a test failure it will automatically rerun itself, you know, because it can tell if the process exits with a non-zero status, it knows there was a test failure. Oh, uh, okay. I think this probably comes from Git Bisect where you do have to tell it, yes or no, the bug was still there. Right. With our spec, because it is the test runner, it already knows. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, because I got that not Bisect that I, I kind of put two and two together with Git Bisect, which pretty much kind of does the same thing with the commit. If you want to find out what commit broke a feature that you're kind of looking for. So that's pretty cool. I'm definitely going to just run RSpec Bisect on purpose, even though probably all my tests are going to pass, but I want to see what happens. So it's going to be pretty cool. <laughs> it's going to take a super long time is what's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to bisect your entire test suite looking oh, for a failure. Oh, <laughs> How long does that take normally? I, mean, I guess like whatever your test suite is, times some multiplier I yeah, guess yeah you just go to sleep overnight <laughs> well I mean so if you have like a I don't know like a three minute test suite then mm -hmm. it might take like 10 minutes depending on how hard it is to <laughs> narrow down that bug mm -hmm. like if you actually have one test and it that, that's failing in your whole suite and it's not actually dependent on anything else then it's going to find it really quickly Mm -hmm. But if it's dependent and it has to run this particular combination of three tests and like in the right order in order for it to fail, then it's, it, it takes a little while longer. Mm -hmm. So does RSpec bisect take like the random flag that RSpec has? If you give it, you have to give it a seed. You have, yeah, we have to give it a seed. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you don't give it a seed, then it's just not going to catch order dependent bugs. Yeah. So I just always give it a seed. It's more useful that way. I don't have a teacher I learned, but I, I did have a test of failure. So I was working with this API and I was using VCR. I don't know how other people feel about VCR, the uh, request recording library for mocking tests in Ruby. But anyway, the way it works is by default, it matches any requests that your test suite makes based off of its URI and its method. So if you make a get request to slash customers, then it'll look inside of the cassette that it's recorded for a get request to slash customers. And this works really well for uh, RESTful APIs. 
And so I was working with a ostensibly RESTful API, and it was working really well. And then I started getting this weird intermittent test failure because I was creating customers with a particular ID, and then it was not finding them again on playback. And it was strange because RSpec shouldn't actually care what the ID of the user is because the ID of the user is a parameter that's kept, that gets passed in. You don't bake that into either the URI or the method. And unfortunately, it turned out that there was a quirk in the API that I was using, and they had omitted the question mark in the URL that separates the parameter from the end of oh. the path. Oh my! Yeah, it's really it's really evil. And so, the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so the ID of the user was actually baked into the URI itself, and. Of course, if you run the test suite in a different order, you might end up with a different ID of user because it's active record and it generates them, you know, in a different order every time if you're running your whole test suite. And so I ended up having to write a custom cassette matcher, which I didn't realize was a thing that you could do. So I ended up like burning a ton of time. That was the failure, burning a ton of time trying to figure out why my cassettes weren't hitting properly. But what I learned out of it was that you can create custom cassette matchers so that instead of matching based off of the URI and the method, you can match based off basically anything. And so that's, that's a really powerful technique if you're ever up against a non-restful route that you're trying to test with VCR. So. I imagine when you deleted that cassette and then tried running the test so that VCR can create new cassettes, it will still mess up because the question mark was missing in the URI. Is that correct? No, actually, if I deleted the cassette, then it would hit the external API, and I had formatted the request correctly, uh, and so it was working fine. I see. It was just I didn't notice, and I probably should have noticed sooner that the way that I had been getting the API to respond was with this non-restful request, and that I should pay attention to that because that might be related to the bug. Got it. Thank you all for your teach and learn and your toast to failures, and I'd like to thank all the panelists today. And thank you for listening to The Rabbit Hole. We'll see you next time.